John chapter 5, the Gospel of John in chapter 5. Would you go there with me this morning, John 5, and we're going to pick up where we left off last time in verse 30. And I would like for you to to, uh, take your copy of God's Word and follow along in it as I read from mine. John 5 and verses 30 through 47. Jesus is saying, verse 30, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. There is another who bears witness about me, And I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He, that's John, he was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have not heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Now we saw earlier here in John chapter 5 that after healing the man at the pool of Bethesda, that the Jewish religious leaders were, were persecuting Jesus. I mean, he, he dared to break their Sabbath laws. Those weren't biblical laws. Those weren't God's laws. Those were, those were man-made regulations that they were dutiful to keep and wanted everyone else to keep. And Jesus had dared to to break their Sabbath rules. And they began persecuting Jesus, even trying to find a way to have him killed. But it was mostly because of his claims of deity that they wanted him dead. They had clearly understood that that what Jesus had said was, was that he was God Incarnate. He was God in human flesh. They certainly understood very clearly what he was saying as we studied 
last week and a week before earlier here in John chapter 5 that what he was saying was making himself equal with God, making him God in human flesh. And for that, they certainly wanted him crucified. They wanted him dead. Of course, they wanted to kill him because they, they didn't believe his claims. Of course, if they had believed his claims, they wouldn't have wanted to kill him, right? They rejected his claims. They also wanted him dead because he was laying down some serious challenges to their authority. You realize that? Here comes Jesus, and he says, My father is working, and I am working. That's why I heal on the Sabbath, because God the Father and God the Son don't stop working on the Sabbath. And we can say, praise God, He still works in us, right? Seven days a week. We can praise God that He doesn't take a day off on our account, right? Because we would be in really sad shape if He did. And they were realizing that He was clearly challenging their teaching, clearly challenging their beliefs, clearly challenging their authority. And what we saw last week was a response to their disbelief. They did not believe in Him. And so they wanted Him gone. They wanted Him dead. And here's what we saw last time, that Jesus has the authority to give life, and He has the authority to judge. And He made that very clear. And they sought all the more to do away with Him. You see, the question is, with all the evidence, would they believe in Him? And would they obey? With all the evidence. You know, there's there's a lot of evidence to this point, even in these first five chapters of John. There's a lot of evidence about who Jesus is. With all the evidence, would they believe in Him and obey? He was certainly giving them every opportunity to believe. He wanted them to be saved. We just read it this morning. Would they believe with all the evidence and would they obey? You know, that's that's the same question we're faced with when we come to this passage today. With all the evidence pointing to Jesus Christ as God the Son, God in human flesh, God incarnate, will we believe and will we obey? We've noted in our previous studies in John's Gospel that the Apostle states very clearly later in his Gospel, John chapter 20 and verse 31, his purpose for writing. Listen, but these are written, all these things that come before chapter 20 and verse 31, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Now, what's one of the surest signs of life in one who says he is a follower of Christ? Don't answer. I want you to think about this. What's one of the surest signs of life in one who says, I am a follower of Christ? And I'm going to tell you what I think it is. One of the surest signs of life in one who says, I believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I have surrendered my life to Him. And I say, prove it. You know how you prove it? You obey. Obedience is one of the surest signs of life in one who claims to be a follower of Christ. 
God's word says, prove it. You know that? Again and again, God's word says, by, by their works, you shall know them. And he was talking about false teachers then, but it, it works the other way too. By our works, you'll know that we're followers of Christ. We don't do good works so that we'll be accepted by Christ, but because we are accepted by God and we are forgiven our sins, we do good works, right? out of obedience, out of love, out of honor and respect. I think that's one of the surest signs of life in one who says he's a follower of Christ. And John says his purpose for writing these is so that we might believe and have life. And I'll tell you what, when you have life in Jesus Christ, you joyfully obey. You realize that you either believe in Jesus or you don't? Have you ever thought about that? There's absolutely no middle ground here. <laughs> you either believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, or you you don't. There's no middle ground when it comes to faith in Christ. You either trust Jesus with all your life, or with none of it. You trust Him with everything, all your life, or with none of it. So the question is, is this morning, and, and I want you to think about this with me as we look at the passage, why should you trust Jesus with your whole life? And don't get me wrong, I'm not doubting this, I'm, I'm going to make it really clear that you should. Okay, You should trust Jesus with your whole life, but I want you to see why. There's some evidence here in our passage this morning, some evidence for why you should trust in Jesus with your whole life and be fully and wholly His. See, Jesus knows that people need evidence. And aren't you thankful for evidence that Jesus is who he says he is? Right? We're reassured. We're given, we're given confidence in Christ because we have evidence that he is who he says he is. And I'm so thankful that God is gracious to us and he didn't just says, didn't just say, believe in Jesus or else with no evidence whatsoever. He gave us lots of evidence, and we can be thankful for plenty of it. That's what we find as we come to these verses 30 through 47. Jesus points to the evidence for who he is. He's saying, look, you don't like me challenging your authority? You need to know why I can and do and will challenge your authority. First of all, we saw it last week. I have the authority to give life, and I have the authority to judge. And we talked about it last time. You will face one of those eternities. You will face eternal life with Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, or you will face eternal death and punishment in hell, separated from God with Jesus as your judge. There's absolutely no middle ground, right? But Jesus comes along. He says, look, I want you to believe. I want you to be saved. Jesus points to the evidence for who he is so that we might believe and have life rather than face him as our just judge. But there's a problem. There's a problem. You see, many don't believe that Jesus has the authority to be their judge, right? You know some people like that. I know some people like that. You you may have been people like that. You might be here this morning saying, you know what, I... I, I I like you know I, hear, I like what I hear. I'm glad you're you're you know you're using Bible verses and such, and I think Jesus was a good man. But but deep down, I really don't believe he has the authority to judge me. After all, I'm really not as bad as my neighbor. As, after all, I've seen some wicked things talked about on the news this week. Right? Do you ever get tired of seeing all the bad stuff that happens in our world? 
it's one of the curses, I think, on us today is we have this instant technology so we can, we can know instantly all the bad things that are happening around us, right? And if we aren't careful, we'll get a bit overwhelmed. And if we aren't careful, we'll get a bit desensitized to our own sin. Because we can watch and say, well, look at them. You know, that's, that's wretched. That's tragic. That's terribly wrong. I don't do those things. And God wants to talk to you personally. And He wants to talk to me personally. And He wants to do it through His Word. And we often have this problem that we like what we hear about Jesus. I'll take Jesus, but I don't want His authority to judge me. Well, I'll tell you what. If you don't want the Jesus who judges, you can't have the Jesus who gives life either. And that's just what he addresses in verse 30. Because they didn't believe he had the authority to fulfill his claims. And so he gives them more evidence for his authority. Verse 30. Look at it. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. You see, Jesus' judgment is just, and Jesus has the authority to judge, because He only does the Father's will. Jesus is a great example to us as children. Right? We have parents, children, young people, not so young people who have parents. You ought to honor your parents. <laughs> you, ought to, you ought to please them by doing the things that please them. I'm not, talk, I'm not suggesting you do things that are inappropriate that, might, that, that they, they ask you to do. But for God's glory, you do what God's Word says in honor of those who are your parents. And Jesus is a wonderful example of this who says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I can. I seek not my own will, but the will of Him who sent me, God the Father. Jesus' judgment is just and right and holy, and Jesus has the authority to judge because He only does the Father's will, and God is just and right in all He does. Right? God is just and right in all He does. I hear some of you saying amen. I see some of you nodding your heads. But some of you identify with the fact that we don't always say amen about that and we don't always nod our heads about that, right? Because sometimes we say, why did God do that? And sometimes we have difficult questions that we can't answer. Because God doesn't give us answers to to why He does what He does, right? But this we know, and this we can have confidence in, that God is just and right in all he does. There are no exceptions. There are no exclusions. God is just and right in all he does. And we must also agree with this. I I think that that we can agree with this, that Jesus is God's son. Jesus is God the son, God in human flesh. We've seen the evidence again and again in John's Gospel. If you're a studier of God's Word, you see it throughout the Scriptures, that Jesus is God in human flesh. Would you say amen to that? All right, so we can agree that Jesus is God 
in human flesh. And we just agreed that, that God is just and right in all He does. So it follows that Jesus is just and right in all He does. Amen? Now, since He only does what the Father does, He is just and right in all He does. So why don't people believe in Christ? Haven't we all said that? Why don't they just believe? Right? And why didn't these religious leaders believe in Him? Well, Jesus points to why. Look at verse 31. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. Now, this is not to say that Jesus' witness about Himself isn't true. It is. He is being truthful about Himself. But you understand what He's saying here, right? He says, look, I testify, I speak about my own credentials. You're not, you're not judging me as speaking truthfully. He's stating the obvious to these Jewish religious leaders, and he's, he, he testifies of Himself, and they do not believe Him. Now, Christ's witness of Himself is true. I'm not asking you, I'm telling you, okay? (laughs) Jesus' witness of Himself is true. We can have confidence in that as we read God's Word. and And He reveals Himself to us in our hearts as we believe and read and study God's Word. Christ's witness of Himself is true. But they don't believe. But Christ's witness of Himself doesn't stand alone either. We don't have to rest solely on what Jesus says about Himself. In fact, we're going to see a fourfold testimony to Christ's authority here. A fourfold witness. Verse 32, look at it. We begin here, verse 32, where it says, There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony of, that he bears about me is true. Now this is just kind of setting up what's coming after. And, and in the next verse, he switches gears a little bit, and you, if you're not careful, you might think here that he's talking about John the Baptist, because in, in the next verse he talks about John the Baptist. But this is kind of like a header, you know, a heading. You ever read a, see a heading over an article or something like that to kind of help you know where you're going? He's saying, there is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. He's talking about God the Father. And then he shows all the ways God the Father testifies about him. So there's also this witness of God the Father. Next, in verse 33, Jesus points to the witness of John. He's not talking about John the Baptist's witness there in verse 32, but he's kind of introducing the idea here. And he's going to give us four evidences from God the Father as to why we should trust in Jesus and believe who He is. He's actually talking about the witness of God the Father there in verse 32. So here's the first of this fourfold witness to Christ. It's the witness of John the Baptist. Look at verse 33 and following. You sent to John. He's talking to these religious leaders who are challenging him. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Verse 34, Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. You see, Jesus says, Look, you even sent for John because you thought there's something interesting about this fellow who people are following and listening to his preaching and he's baptizing. We better go find out who he is. Maybe he's the Messiah. Remember talking about that a few chapters ago? They went and they inquired of John. And Jesus says, But I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. 
He was a burning and shining lamp. To what? To Jesus Christ. To the fact that Jesus Christ is, is the Messiah, not He Himself. We saw the witness with John back in chapter 1 and verse 15. You want to go back there with me for a moment? Keep a finger here in John 5, but go back a couple of chapters to verse, chapter 1. Look at verse 15. John 1.15, John bore witness about Him, that's Christ, and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after Me ranks before Me because He was before Me. And if you remember that far back when we talked about this, I noted that that's a pointer to the deity of Christ. Because Jesus was physically born after John the Baptist. But John the Baptist says, He was before Me. Why? Because He's God. Now, what had the Jews learned when they sent this delegation to inquire of John the Baptist? Well, later, keep looking, verse 19, later in chapter 1, verses 19 to 23, we see what they learned from him. And this is the testimony of John, verse 19. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. I love that he doesn't tell them who he is. He tells them who he's not. Because it's not about John, it's all about Christ. Don't forget that. It's true for you and me too. It's not about us, it's about how we live for Christ and for His glory. He confessed and did not deny, verse 20, I am not the Christ. And they asked Him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And He answered, No. Still not saying anything about Himself, is He? Other than to deny who they were assuming He might be. Verse 22, so they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? Verse 23, he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. He's saying, look, I'm just here to make the way plain, to make the path straight for for the one who come after me, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the one who was actually before me because he's God. So there's the witness of John the Baptist about Christ. But note that we read it. Who sent John the Baptist to testify about Christ? God did. Okay? God sent John the Baptist to testify about who Christ is. So there's this full fourfold witness of the Father about the Son, and it begins here, Jesus begins pointing to John the Baptist. John's witness pointed to Christ the Messiah, just as Jesus' own claims did. But John's witness about Christ was not alone, okay? Remember I said there were four. It's a fourfold witness. You know, it's one thing to have the witness of a man on your behalf, isn't it? You might be encouraged to have the witness of another person to, to witness and testify for you, um, in a in a serious situation, let's say that you get home this afternoon and there's a sheriff's cruiser sitting in your driveway and two burly deputies waiting to put you in handcuffs. And they do, and they put you in the car and they haul you away and put you in jail and say they're charging you with some heinous crime. And you're to go to before the judge Monday morning. You go before the judge Monday morning. And remember, you get your one phone call, right, like in the movies? And so you called your lawyer. And there he is waiting for you in the courtroom on Monday morning. And you get there and you stand beside your lawyer. And the judge says, what do you have to say for yourself? And the lawyer begins to speak on your behalf. might encourage you to have a, a smart 
well-paid lawyer on your behalf, but he's there because he's being paid. And then all of a sudden, the doors open and the room fills with unbelievable light like no one's ever seen before and God enters the courtroom. And he says to the judge, this person is not guilty. Of course, no one can stay seated or standing in the presence of God. We're all prostrate before him in the courtroom, right? And if you could just imagine with me, right? God entering the courtroom. Who do you want to testify for you? The lawyer you paid to be there or God in unapproachable light? I want God. So Jesus says, I don't just have man testifying on my behalf. I also have God. Something far more significant to have the witness of God on your behalf. But don't forget, God sent John the Baptist too, right? Look at verse 36. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish. Note that. The works. That's number two. The works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. What have the works been? We've seen healings, haven't we? We've seen the water to wine, haven't we? And there have been far more than those that John hasn't written about. The testimony that I have is greater than that of John for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish. The very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Verse 37 says, And the Father who sent me has has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you. That is a tragic statement. You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. So here, Jesus clearly has the witness of God the Father on his behalf. And if you have God as your witness, you'd think there would no longer be any doubt. Right? But clearly, as Jesus says, he has the witness of his works, which he only does at the direction of the Father, and these works clearly bear witness about Christ, that he has been sent by the Father. So they believe now, right? They should believe now. No, they don't. Jesus says, verse 39, look at it. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. The witness of the Scriptures. God's Word. Another evidence to who Jesus Christ is. And Jesus points back to the Old Testament here, to these Jewish religious leaders, these Old Testament scholars who paid attention to every word and every jot and every tittle and every space and every letter, right? And they were very meticulous about the Old Testament and they searched and searched and searched and didn't see Jesus because they really weren't looking for Jesus. 
See, these Jews not only had the witness of Jesus in the flesh and his works, but they also had the witness of the Old Testament scriptures. And of all people, as they searched the scriptures, they should have believed. But they didn't. And back in verse 38, there's another sad note sounded. They don't have the witness of the word in them because they did not believe in the Son whom God had sent. God's Word has not taken up residence in your life. And that is a very sad statement. May that never be said of you. May that never be said of me. That God's Word has never taken root. You see, God's Word is a very precious gift to those who believe. You realize that? Is a very precious gift, but is a worthless gift if you don't believe. Well, there are a lot of people who own Bibles, right? Oh, I've got a Bible. We've got a family Bible. You might have a family Bible, right? It's probably not the one you read. It's probably not the one you, you sit with in the morning with a strong cup of coffee. Maybe you don't sit with a strong cup of coffee, but I hope you sit with your, with the Bible in the morning. And you sit and you read God's Word. And you search the Scriptures so that you might know God and know His will and know His ways and know His promises and know His commands so that you might be more Christ-like. You might keep them. And you would think that, that these men, these seekers of the Old Testament would have seen Jesus Christ pointed to in the Old Testament, but they did not and they did not believe. And so that precious gift of the Word was worthless to them. Just like the precious gift of God's Word to you may be worthless to you if you never open it, if you never read it, if you never obey it, if it never changes your life. God's Word is worthless to you. My father-in-law and, uh, and I were talking last night. And we were, I told you I'd use this today. Um, he, he was telling me an illustration about you shared in a Bible study, I think, in your, with your church, your prayer group, breakfast, prayer breakfast, and, and uh, about a fellow who, who said you'd use a, a pen to underline things in your Bible, right? You do that? Marks in the margins, underline, highlight words. You use a highlighter maybe to highlight words in your Bible. How many of you use whiteout? <laughs> Sounds preposterous to us, doesn't it? How many of us would use whiteout? I know you were sharing the example of a fellow who, who went to a woman who was, who was complaining. And he pointed her to a passage of Scripture and handed her a bottle of white out and said, wipe that verse out. You don't believe it. Now that sounds preposterous to us, doesn't it? We would not do that. But we do. We don't use the bottle of white out. We just skip over that part, right? And, and for those of us who look at God's Word and go, well, that, you know, that's a pretty tough one. I'm going to pass that one by. I'll, I'll, I'll go with the one where it tells me that God loves me instead of the one that tells me that I'm a sinner. tells me that I don't have faith or tells me that I need to be obedient, I'll pass those, those by. For us, God's Word is worthless if we do that. For them, God's Word was worthless. They sought the Scriptures, sought the Scriptures, sought the Scriptures, but they didn't see Jesus. And they didn't see the depravity of their own hearts and their need for repentance and belief in the Son of God who was speaking to them in human flesh. God's Word is a precious gift 
And the work of the Word in your soul, the soul of one who believes, is a precious gift that's only possible by the work of the Holy Spirit and those who believe. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. You realize what a privilege it is to be able to believe and have the Spirit of God working in you, helping you spiritually discern and understand God's Word. Do you realize that you can't spiritually discern and understand God's Word, even if you have the Spirit, if you don't read the Word? If you kind of, in effect, use the whiteout? That's why it's so important that God's people be readers of His Word. I recently asked our our group on Wednesday nights, we gather together on Wednesday nights, and let me make another invitation, give you another. This is a formal invitation for you to join us on Wednesday nights to come together as we pray. It's not a fancy time. It's not flashy. Sometimes we sing a song or two, and we share prayer requests. One of the things I love the most is we praise God together. We share praises and answers to prayer and, and passages of Scripture that have been a challenge and encouragement to, to us. I understand if you're not able to be here, but if you want to join us for one of the most important ministries in the lifeblood of this church, come and join us on Wednesday night for prayer. Sometimes I share prayer requests, and I began sharing this prayer request a couple of weeks ago, and I said, pray that those who call Higgins Lake Baptist Church home will be readers of God's Word. Because you may come and hear preaching of the Word, and you may say, yeah, that's right, that's right, amen, preach it, brother. She needs to hear that. He needs to hear that. Preach it, right? We do that, kind of go, did you hear that? We were talking about that. You need that, what he said. Or, or, or to say, going out the door, boy, I wish so-and-so would have been here, right? Right? We do that. We kind of think that way. Boy, I wish so-and-so would have heard that. You were here. <laughs> and God's talking to you, right? But if you go home and you never open the Word to let it speak to you and let the Holy Spirit speak to you through the Word, you're neglecting one of the most vital things in your spiritual life that can exist because the Spirit will use the Word when you get the Word in. But it's like taking half of the equation away to say, well, yeah, I'm thankful I have the Spirit. I'm thankful for the death of Christ for me to, to expunge my sins and cancel the debt and actually eliminate the debt, but I don't know if I care about the Word too much. I just want to live under the, the joy of having been forgiven of my sins. Well, the Holy Spirit... Is not going to do a work in you like he would do in you if you have his word in you. And so we began praying that. I hope you'll pray that with us, that, that God's people, those who call Higgins Lake Baptist Church home, will be God's, uh, God's people who read the word. And along with that goes obedience, not just reading the word. But you've got to get the word in. God's people must be readers of his word. There's so much food for your spiritual life that's only yours as you read and feed on the Word. Now, there are spiritual things that can only be discerned as you get God's Word into your mind, as it equips you, as it changes your thinking about everything you face. Do you think that you can't afford time in the Word? You know, sometimes we say, I just didn't have time today. I just can't make the time, you know, this week to, to give as much time to reading the Word as I would like. If you think you can't afford time, I want to challenge you that you are wrong. You can't afford not to give time to reading God's Word and letting it change your thinking and saturate your soul. You can't afford not to give daily attention to God's Word. And I'm not talking about merely reading, but I'm talking about believing 
believing in God's Word as you read. You see, God's Word is preparing you. It's a sad statement when we come to this passage in John and it says they did not have the Word of God in them. May it never be said of us that we not have the Word of God in us. Because you may not realize it, but you're about to face a problem in your life if you're not facing one already. Right? I mean, that's just part of living life, to face challenges and heartache and problems. And God wants His Word to equip you for the things He knows are coming. He actually knows what they are. You know they're coming too, but He actually knows what they are and when they'll be here and how how desperately you'll need the Word that He wants to be in your heart and mind to equip you to deal with that hardship and that problem and that heartache. I think Dave pointed to that this morning when he prayed. Dave Angus prayed and said that you know something of this brokenness, you know, in us that we just know we're going to have a hardship. We just know we're going to, and God has kind of programmed that in, so to speak, that you can plan on it. You may not be having a problem now, but you need God's word now so that you'll you'll be equipped to deal with that problem that's coming in a way that's obedient to God's word and Christ honoring and God glorifying. And not only that, but you know that way is what's best for you in that situation to respond in a way that's God glorifying as God equips you to respond to trouble. That's where we have an opportunity to walk in obedience in the word. We have an opportunity, you know, that's that's the true test of who we are in Christ if we obey God in the midst of trouble. What we are in trouble is who we really are. So get the get the word in and become a person of the word. And saturate your heart and soul and mind with the Word of God. Um, my boys and I, earlier this week, my oldest three boys, um, and I went to a pastor's conference down, a two-day pastor's conference down north of Grand Rapids. And D.A. Carson was one of the speakers there. And I was so challenged by what he had to say when he talked about when they began, uh, they, they had their first child, a girl, and they began reading to her uh, nursery stories, nursery rhymes in a book. And he, being... Um, Clever thought that after a while, after reading for a few months, she got to be about two years old, reading this book of nursery rhymes to her, he began um, leaving out words. And incredibly, even before she could read, she would sit down with this nursery rhyme book and look at the picture on the left-hand side of the page and read the story. Even though she couldn't read, she would recite the story and flip the page and recite the story and flip the page and recite the story. He got convicted and said, we need to start hiding God's word in that little heart. And he began reading a chapter of God's Word, the same chapter of God's Word every day. And then he'd read another chapter. I can't remember if it was First Corinthians. He would read a certain chapter in the book and read the next chapter in the book at the beginning. He'd read the same chapter the next day and another, a different chapter to go with it. After several, several days of reading the same chapter over and over again, he would begin leaving out words and she would insert the word. Everywhere he left out a word, she'd insert the word, youngster. His challenge was to get the word in. Get the Word in. Saturate your heart and soul and mind with the Word because you cannot be the person God wants you to be without the Word. That is a tragic and sad statement that they did not have the Word of God in them. Oh, they had the Word. And they studied the Word. But it wasn't in them. God's Word ought to become second nature for us. So when we face hardship and trials and struggles... The natural tendency is to remember and recall the truths that we've read. 
And if it means reading them over and over and over and over and over again so that you can replace the missing word, then so be it. Read it over and over and over again. I have a challenge for you this week, something I was encouraged with this week, and I want to challenge you. We're going to enter chapter 6, chapter 6 next week in John's Gospel. And I want to challenge you with this. It's something you may have never done before, something you may do now. But I want you to go, while we're talking about getting God's Word in, I want to give you a tool to help you get God's Word in and to prepare you for chapter 6 when we go to chapter 6 next week, Lord willing. Would you take a notebook or a piece of paper and sit down and, and write out verses 1 through 14 this week? Write it out. Would you do that? You don't have to say you will. I just want a challenge to you that, that I think will be helpful to you, that it will equip you to think more carefully about God's Word and to slow down over God's Word. Would you do that if you're able to? Take a, a notebook or a journal. Some of you may journal and sit down and with chapter 6 and look at verses 1 through 14. 1 through 14 and write them down in preparation for next Sunday's study. And just leave some room for notes about what God's speaking to you about as you read that those verses and write them down word for word in, in whatever translation you choose. Would you do that? A little bit of homework for you to prepare for next Sunday so that you will be readers of God's Word and those who study God's Word and are saturated with the truth of God's Word because you cannot afford not to read God's Word. There's a, there's a tool for you. There are many ways you can read and study God's Word. That's one of them. Verses 1 through 14 in chapter 6, write them down this week. You know, it's one thing to have head knowledge about God's Word, but heart knowledge equals obedience. Right? Heart knowledge equals obedience. That's, that's what these religious leaders lacked. Not head knowledge. They had plenty of head knowledge, but they didn't have heart knowledge. They didn't have obedience. They didn't believe, and they didn't obey. And that's why Jesus says, look at verse 40, Yet you refuse to come to me, that you may have life. That is another tragic statement. Life. You could have life if you would humble yourself before God and believe in His Son, Jesus Christ. Life is yours. If you'll repent of your sin and believe in Jesus Christ for salvation, life is yours. That's for us still today. It was for them. He says, you refuse to come to me, that you may have life. They had all kinds of head knowledge about the Old Testament Scriptures. But amazing as it sounds, they did not believe those very Scriptures that testified of Christ. They could, they couldn't understand apart from being transformed by the Holy Spirit, could they? They couldn't see the truth aside from being transformed by the, by the Holy Spirit because they didn't believe. They didn't have the Holy Spirit. And they had not the Holy Spirit, because they did not believe. It's a mad cycle. Then Jesus says, look at verses 41 to 43. Then Jesus says, I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. Listen, Jesus says, I don't receive glory from people. In other words, you don't believe. You don't believe. So I don't receive glory from people. But that's no surprise because you don't have the love of God within you, so you don't believe. And what's worse, those who come and claim to be the Messiah, you will believe, and that it actually happened. 
Some commentators indicate that there had been as many as 64 false messiahs that had presented themselves over the earlier centuries. 64. And they had believed in them until they realized they were false messiahs. You see, Jesus points to their problem with believing. And this is a problem we have today. We see it still today. It seems like people will believe in almost anything, doesn't it? And it's so tragic, we go, why are you believing in that foolishness? Believe in Jesus Christ and be saved. Jesus points to their problem and ours. Verse 44, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? See, it's Jesus who is the only way, the only truth, the only life. But if you're preoccupied with trying to gain man's approval, you cannot humble yourself before God. You cannot stoop before God. You're too busy stooping before man. And that was their problem. And Jesus points next to the one who would be their accuser. And it's an interesting point that he makes. Look at verses 45 through 47 again. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? See, that had to be a a real shocker to these Jewish religious leaders because they claimed to have believed Moses and believed what he wrote in his Old Testament writings, but they truly had not believed because Moses was writing about Christ. (laughs) Jesus says, he was writing about me. And you say you believe him, but you really don't believe him because you don't believe me. And they refuse to believe in Christ. And that would one day make Moses their accuser, the very one they revered and said they believed. These men would one day show their ultimate disbelief when they crucified Christ. But it wasn't that there weren't plenty of witnesses to who Jesus is. There were plenty. There was the witness of Christ about himself. They didn't believe him. There was the witness of John the Baptist, whom God sent. They didn't believe him. There was the witness of Jesus' own works, whom God sent with him to do. I'm doing the works of my Father. They may have been impressed with the works, but they didn't believe in Jesus because of the works. There was the witness of the Father. They didn't believe him. And there was the witness of the Scriptures about the Son. And they didn't believe in him did not believe his word. And because they did not believe, they would eventually crucify Christ. Not knowing that they were crucifying their judge. The one who would judge them. Not knowing also that they were also crucifying, murdering the very one who brings life and brings it to all who believe. 
how tragic that they had all these witnesses to Christ and yet disbelieved. May it not be said of us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you. We worship you. I pray that the attitude of our hearts is that we long to glorify you because you're because of your goodness and grace and mercy on us through your Son, Jesus Christ. God, help us to look to your Lamb, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Help us to look to Jesus and believe. And God, may the evidence of our belief be our obedience for your glory and our own good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.